Well, friends, let me invite you to turn in your copy of the Bible to Genesis 29. <clears throat> Boys and girls, there's a little magic thing that you may still encounter in the day of Amazon and the day of uh, Walmart pickups and Costco pickups. I don't know if you encounter it, but there's this thing that I used to encounter back in my day called the checkout line. I don't know if everybody still encounters that. Um, but in the checkout line, it was a wondrous place. There was candy. You could just grab it and take it. I don't encourage you to do that, but you could do it. See how far you got. There were also magazines. There's one type of magazine that I'm sure none of you ever picked up. I never picked it up. It's the one that spilled the dirt on the latest soaps. The latest soap operas, The Young and the Restless, General Hospital, Grey's Anatomy, those shows I never have watched unless for some reason I'm at the uh, mechanic. I don't know why they always have this channel on. They always have the channel on and I have to, it's always on loud volume. But in any event, that's my issue. We come today to the soap opera of the Bible. We come today to, um, well, what could have been uh, written today. We come to a very modern story in this sense. It's a... Uh, family where everybody behaves badly. It's um, one man, four women, 12 kids, backstabbing, lying, jealousy, drugs, envy, all the fun cocktails of modern day soap operas, modern day dramas. It's colorful. It's shocking. Before we hit it, let me give you one caveat. Uh, at this point, we're going to read about a man who has, uh, well, multiple wives. We're going to read about uh, this family where everyone is degraded at some point in some way. We're going to get into that. And some of y'all out there will say, aha, this is why I hate church. This is why I hate the Bible. All this discussion, primitive people, women being bought and sold. This entire thing is offensive. Polygamy? It's disgusting. Brides being purchased like last week. We saw Leah and Rachel get purchased. There's slavery here. There's servants. That's offensive. I'm glad it's offensive, by the way. But the great Jewish scholar Robert Alter says, look, if you think that this book, the book of Genesis, which mentions polygamy, which mentions brides, which mentions slavery, if you think that the narrator of Genesis is supporting that, he says it pretty bluntly. You haven't figured out how to read yet. He says, look, if you read through this Bible and you think that God is somehow supporting these things. In every place where you have in every story where you have polygamy, where you have slavery, where you have bride purchases, where you have these sort of things, they bring devastation. They ruin everybody they touch. And secondly, if you think, well, look, the Bible's so primitive. These are ancient people. I'm glad in modern day 2022, we've gotten past that. Well, friends, <laughs> do you think we live in a time where a woman's looks do not determine her life in any way, shape, or form? Do you think we live in that time where a man's work and the amount of time he can work for someone would not determine the course of his life? We still have these problems, friends. We have not somehow become more enlightened. We have not gotten past these, uh, these issues. These are real people because the Bible is not a cutesy book. It's not a cutesy book with simplistic moral principles. It's real life. 
So let's turn to this week's episode of uh, the young and the restless. I mean, Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Uh, we'll begin in verse 31, just Genesis 29. We'll read through chapter 30, verse 24. Let me remind you, this is not simply a story. It's not simply a narrative. It is God's word that's given to you for your growth, for your training, for your instruction. Let's treat it as that. We're told by Moses, we're told by God that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then Rachel said, Here, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my cause and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So he called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So he called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah said to Rachel, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then Jacob may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob lay with her that night and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God... Then God remembered Jacob, uh, remember Rachel, and God listened to her and opened his, her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. 
And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Well, beloved, the grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Let's pray and ask this word to bear much fruit, much fruit in our lives. Father, we come, we come to a family that is not working well. We know our families don't often work well, but maybe not on this level. We ask that you would show us in here the way you overrule our inability, the way you overrule our preferences, the way you even overrule our sin. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who has wed us to himself in glorious splendor. Amen. Well, three people, Jacob, Rachel, Leah. God had promised, hey, Jacob, I'm with you. I'm with these people. Uh, Jacob, of course, has, has gotten into trouble. He's been tricked. We saw it last week. He's been deceived. He's been beguiled. And um, now we get to what married life is like with Jacob. What is life like with this guy, this Hulk, this strong man? What's life like with beautiful Rachel and semi-beautiful Leah? It's a sad story is what it's like. It's a sad story about people who don't talk to God. Trapped in family chaos, trapped in unhappiness, screaming at each other, screaming at God, never trusting him. Does that sound like your family? Tangled, tangled web, tangled web. Maybe you feel trapped. If you want the message of today, here's the method of today. God can enter into any tangled web that you weave. He can enter into the most dysfunctional family that you ever could think of, your sin, your situation, and he can bring you to good, though it may be sore. This situation, this dysfunction, this evil situation among people who called themselves believers was not beyond God's power to save. Let's start here with Leah, okay? If you want to outline Leah and Rachel, very easy in one sense, Leah and Rachel. It starts with, a, with two loves. It starts really with verse 30 of chapter 29. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. He, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And we're told, however, that Jacob may have his preferences, but God sees. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. It's a beautiful statement that God sees Leah's condition, her lack of love, and he responds with love. You might almost translate it. When the Lord saw Leah was hated, he loved her. He loved her. She didn't have the sparkle of her younger sister. She didn't have the zest of Rachel. That doesn't mean she didn't long for a husband. I mean, it would be a strange world if only the beautiful people wanted husbands and wives. That would be a weird world to live in. And Leah, deeply ironically, Leah wants desperately the love of her husband, but all she gets are sons. She wants desperately... She reaches out her hands to love him, but she's actually lost him. And yet God, in seeing the hatred, shows mercy to her. Look at the first kid she has, verse 32, Reuben. And she uses the covenant name for the Lord because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. He sees her. He sees her pain. Do you know that God sees your pain? God sees your affliction. Verse 33, second child, the Lord has heard God sees, God hears, God does, God responds, God loves. But there's also something else in this. There's also something else that, that's deeply real and deeply true and deeply sad. That when God shows mercy to you, when God showers grace upon you, he doesn't make your life perfect. When God 
pours out his love upon you, he doesn't make everything perfect. Leah is still deeply selfish. Look at verse 32. She says, yes, the Lord's looking upon my affliction. But why does she then say, for now my husband will love me. Now I will get what I want. Now I will have the love. Friends, God's not interested primarily in what you think you want, what you think you need. He is supremely interested in transforming you. And the problem for Leah is that she's receiving grace and she's using it for her own good, for her own glory, for what she thinks she needs. When the second son's born, when Simeon's born, she says, the Lord's heard. He's heard that I'm hated. See, her major issue is that Jacob hates her. She's focusing on Jacob and she's doing what I'm sure none of you ever do, which is using her kids as a weapon. She weaponizes the gift of children against her husband, against her sister. Do you see how the beautiful gift of grace has been perverted here already? It's a hard, a sad condition. Leah's in a hard spot. She's been forced into this marriage, in a sense, by her father. And the husband doesn't love her. It's not, I'm not saying it's right or good. But what does she do with it? She is given grace. And she says, God's proving me right. God's vindicating my cause. If you ever wonder why you lose ground in the spiritual fight, friends, it may be because you love to receive the blessings of God, but you forget that they're actually meant to make you holy and, and not just happy. They're meant to make you happy, but they're meant to make you holy as well. God's not just giving you a happy meal. He's giving you a holy meal as well. So I guess the opening question for you to consider is, how do you use what God's given you? How do you use what God's given you in your life? The grace of God is not first meant to satisfy your desires, but to transform them. He wants to transform your heart. The problem is that Leah has thorns and thistles. Next kid comes out, verse 34. Levi comes out and she says, note there's no reference now to God. That's only dropped. Now this time my husband will be attached to me. But he's not. He's not attached to you. He's not attached to you at all. But God begins to put pressure. It's amazing how God puts pressure on Leah here. He doesn't come and say, Leah, shape up or I'm shipping you out. Leah, I'm giving you this much. No more. What does he do? He gives her more grace. It's surprising here that in the middle of her messed up response to his mercy, he gives her a fourth kid. She bears another son. First time, wrong response. Second time, wrong response. Third time, even worse response. But fourth time, Judah, verse 35. This time, I will praise the Lord. Do you see the lesson, friends? That grace that God gives may end up being choked by thorns and thistles that will make it hard for you to trust God. Make it hard for you to trust God. Leah's story is a story of grace outpoured, grace at arm's length, and yet God giving grace upon grace that breaks eventually Leah's heart. Are you trying to keep God at the level of your comfort? I guess that's the real question. Are you trying to keep God at the level of your comfort or are you bowing down before him and saying, Thy will, not mine. Your grace, not for my will, but for yours. I mean, this is classic God. You know that God delights in overruling your preferences? 
God delights in overruling my preferences. If I had my preferences, the Atlanta Braves win the World Series every year. They don't. I'm glad they did one, you know, at least last year. Of course, it's a slight example, right? God overrules your preferences in, in all sorts of ways. When Adam and Eve had a kid, the first kid, Cain, she says, I have a son from the Lord. She thought Cain would be the savior. He's a murderer. Jacob and Esau. Esau was loved by Isaac. God overruled Isaac. Now Jacob loves Rachel. Who has all the kids? Leah has the kids. What does Leah want? Leah wants her husband. She's not getting her husband. It's God's plans that matter. It's a sad situation. Leah's a pitiable figure. She's unloved. She's trapped. She's in an unhappy relationship. But God overrules even her unhappiness. God blesses her, not in the way she wants, but in the way that he needs. Isn't that your experience, friends? You find yourself in a life that you would not have chosen, but you're just somehow there. You're in a life you would not have picked. And if you had your druthers, if you had your preferences, you're somewhere else. Different life, different circumstances, happier ones, you think, easier ones, most likely, seemingly better ones. But this is where God has planted you, as we say. This is where God has given you this life. And there may be black hours. There are going to be black days. There are going to be dark times. But in the Lord's purpose, God overrules human preferences for your good and his glory. Do you know that about your God? Do you know that you're not in charge, ultimately? You're not in charge of your life. He blesses you. He uses you in uncomfortable places, in unideal circumstances, in difficult relationships. Here is a woman who knows loneliness, who knows unhappiness, and God uses her in a beautiful way. Blessing to the whole world. Blessing to you comes from Leah's kids. Life's not ideal. It's not easy. But that never means that God stops blessing and God stops working. He overrules your limited self-centered, like my limited self-centered human preferences. It hurts. But what does faith tell us? Faith tells us this time I will praise the Lord. That's Leah. How about Rachel? We're told, verse 1, number 30. What's Rachel's response to the situation? When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children... Leah thought she was hated. Rachel saw she had no kids. She envied her sister. It's deeply ironic. They have what the other wants. The prettiest girl in class, Rachel, she has the love that Leah wants, but she has no kids. Leah has the kids Rachel wants. And every time Leah gives birth, what is Rachel thinking? Anger. She's angry. Hatred. She's furious. She's desolate. In a household, the, her sister, I mean, ladies, you can just imagine, you can try to imagine this. If you have sisters and they're married, her sister has born four kids. Rachel has to live day by day. The competition is fierce. It ends up, we'll see it become a baby contest. We know this from the names given to the kids. The kids stop having names that refer to God. After the fourth kid, there's, no, there's not any names that refer to God. They, they really refer to the war. The point of getting kids is not to have kids. It's to get back at the other gal. And so we read in verse 1 here that Rachel was barren. She bore no kids. I mean, if you think about it, what's wrong with these ladies? This is the third generation in a row that we've had barrenness. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. Is there some kind of genetic uh, issue in the line? Statistically, it shouldn't be the case. 
But God is making a point here. One of the basic points of the book of Genesis, one of the points of the Bible, is that barrenness is God's opportunity. He's been showing that to us with Sarah and Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca, you'll remember, they learned the lesson Sarah needed a hard knock to learn after Hagar. Isaac and Rebecca pray, and God grant the child. God is showing them as he's showing us. He gives life. He's the author of life. He can overrule our inability. You can't miss it. You look at Leah, verse 31, the Lord opened her womb. Verse 32, the Lord feeds Leah's misery. Verse 33, the Lord gave Leah this one too. Verse 35, I'll praise the Lord. Next chapter, verse 6, God has given me a child, a son. It couldn't be more clear. God gives life. We get to Rachel. You think she would have learned the lesson. She would have talked to Jacob and figured out, hey, this has happened before. I know what I need to do. I need to pray to God. She doesn't learn that lesson, though. We find her envious. We find her bitter. We find her hard. We find her jealous. We find her not faithful, but jealous towards the sister who seems to have everything she wants. Now, let's be very clear. The Bible does not say that Rachel shouldn't feel bad. The Bible does not say Rachel shouldn't feel bad. Life is sad. Life is fallen. You are going to encounter times in your life where it's deeply appropriate to be despondent. Where the right response is to despair. God never says, hey, just pretend it didn't happen. Life's all peachy keen. Just smile. Just get over it, Rachel. No, the, the question is, when you feel that way, and you will feel that way. When you feel that way. When you know something is missing in your life. It's not about barrenness. It's about what you face on a day-to-day basis. What's your response going to be? Because you and I, friends, live in a world of sadness. We have a world of sorrows. Many sorrowful seasons occur in our lives. In fact, if, if you're never sorrowful, if you're never despondent, that's not a good thing. Something is wrong. You're living with your head in the sand or you live for yourself and you don't care about others. Consider Christ. How did Christ go about this world? Was he happy-go-lucky? He could party, of course. Yes, he could party with the best of them. But he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with griefs. He shed many tears. It is completely right for Rachel to weep here. It is completely proper for her to be sad. It would have been false comfort for a, a, a well-meaning friend to say, oh, no problem, no kids. But it's one thing to be discouraged. It's another thing entirely to let that discouragement fester into envy and bitterness. Because Rachel here is exposing the fact that she has something wrong inside. The problem is not Leah's getting blessed. The problem is that Rachel's soul is misshapen. Rachel's soul is like a hunchback. Rachel's soul is disfigured. Rachel's soul is so oozing out of resentment and bitterness because of her shame that she tries to put it on other people. Yes, she's sad, but she weaponizes her sorrow into envy and bitterness. Not acceptable. Look at how she speaks to Jacob. She goes to her savior. She goes to the person she thinks will save her. It's not God. It's Jacob. She says, Jacob. Give me children or I shall die. This is the first time in the Old Testament we hear Rachel speak. As a side note, Hebrew narrative, when you want to understand the Bible well, Hebrew narrative gives special weight to the first statements people make, characters make. A person's first words tell a lot about who they are in, in these narratives. What's her first words? I need kids or I'm going to die. 
It's not Rachel crying out to her maker. She's not crying out to the Lord. She has sought a savior, but his name's Jacob because that's all she has. What makes Rachel, Rachel? I have my husband's love. That's my only weapon. You know people like this, right? They seek salvation in a love, in a relationship, in a spouse. And then if that love is ever interrupted, they blow up. They don't know what to do. You see with kids, like Leah, salvation in kids. And if that's ever interrupted, if their kids don't succeed in life, if they have problems, bam, life's falling apart. You can do it in a job. You can do it with your money. You can do it in the bottom of a a bottle. You can seek it wherever you want it. What happens? She seeks it in Jacob. And what does Jacob do? Verse 2. Jacob receives the bitterness. And he responds, just like on TV in the soaps, he responds with anger. Am I in God's place? Am I God? Have I withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Don't blame me. Now, that is technically good theology. He's not God. That is technically right doctrine. Congratulations, Jacob. But here's a good lesson for us. It's very possible to have all the right answers, but give them in all the wrong ways and with the wrong voice. It's very possible that for Jacob, you have deep-seated anger at God. And instead of lashing out at God for his situation he's in, because he had to work 14 years for these girls, he's now lashing out at her. And we'll see that this really is the only time he speaks in the whole chapter. We'll see here that Jacob does not pray. He does not say, hey, let's go pray. He does not take her envy and say, you know what? I understand, but that's a wrong response. Let's inquire, of the, let's call upon the Lord. He fails in leading his wife to prayer. He's failing to say to Leah or Rachel, let's trust in God's promises. He'll be with us. Let's ask him. Nothing about that. All his words are deep-seated hatred against God. So I guess the question is, when you have the hard times, when you're despondent, what will your response be? Are you going to trust that God's God, or are you going to be turned into a bitter hunchback of a person? Are you going to be a misshapen soul, as Luther would say, curved in on yourself? Are you going to be embittered? I mean, you know what it's like when God gives other people things. He doesn't give you things. Why don't I get those things? Instead of being thankful, instead of celebrating at baby showers, rejoicing with those who rejoice. We have here a woman whose heart cannot praise God when good happens to others. Instead, she acts. Look at what she does here. Verse three, she's read her Bible. She knows what happened to Sarah. She knows the story of the patriarchs. And so she takes an example from Godly saints. She takes the wrong example. She says, hey, Sarah, you take her. I have a servant. I'll use a servant. I can adopt them and become their mother. I'll have the honor. Literally, the Hebrew says, verse 3, I will build up my house through her. Same exact phrase used by Sarah with Hagar. And it works. (laughs) It works. Sarah had a child. Rachel wins. Verse 6. She says, God has judged my cause right. What's her cause? Not to glorify God, but to one-up her sister. And then she says, oh, another kid. Good job. She uses what Jacob will later use with God. I've wrestled and won with my sister. She's won the baby contest. The score is four to two. I mean, I'm sure she can catch up in the third quarter. But then the story shifts. What happens? Leah sees, ah, servant, 
counter move, my own servant. She uses her own servant, Zilpah. And of course, here we see how really the people who are the lowest here are the servants. I don't have time to get into all that. But she gets two kids just like that. The score is six to two. At this point, Rachel's never going to catch up. Now, it's interesting, like all her, unlike every other kid she has, what does Leah name these kids? Lucky and happy. She named them lucky and happy. I mean, you can just imagine Rachel looking around and seeing that when she thought she had gotten one over on her sister, out pops lucky and happy. I'm just so lucky. God's given me this. I'm just so happy, Leah can say. Rachel realizes that she cannot get what she needs, that her plans, her motives aren't working, but she, there's one last move she can try. Mandrakes. That was your answer. Yes, mandrakes. Verse 14, we get another weird paragraph here in the Bible. Uh, little baby Reuben, I guess he's a little kid. We're not sure how old he is. He's out in the, in the harvest. He's in the field. He finds some mandrakes. He brings them to his mom, Leah. And for some reason, Rachel really loves the mandrakes. She wants the mandrakes. Why? Now, you got to do a little bit of work here. Um, mandrakes were believed to be an aphrodisiac. Now, Reuben cannot spell aphrodisiac. Reuben doesn't even know what aphrodisiac is, but he takes them and he brings them to his mom, Leah. There were basically fertility drugs because sort of the root of the mandrake looks, like, looks a bit like a human figure. Uh, the fruit itself is a small yellow fruit. They called it love apples back in the day. And so the idea was in the ancient world, if you took them, it would be a love potion. You would have a better chance of getting pregnant. In fact, the Song of Songs talks about this, uh, chapter 7, verse 13. The mandrakes send out their fragrance. Rachel's desperate for the mandrakes. She wants to have a kid. She sends Jacob to bargain for the drugs. She takes them. And what happens? Leah has two more kids. Rachel has zip. The drugs don't work. God's saying the mandrakes don't work. Rachel's kids come in God's time. In God's ways are never at all. You see, friends, in themselves, these people are unable to produce kids. And you know, that's not just about kids. It's not a story simply about barrenness. Don't mistake this for some Mother's Day sermon or whatever you, your fancy leads you to. This is a story about your soul. Do you understand that you do not have the ability of yourself to produce spiritual love towards Christ? Do you understand that you, you in your wonderful power that you think you have, you're not able to do it any more than Rachel can force the kids to come out? Rather, God's gifts, like these kids, like any Christian parent should see their, child, their children as God's gifts, God's enabling, God's blessing. So the question is, do you see that just as you pray for your kids to be born again from heaven, that you have to be born again from heaven? You understand this is not a lesson primarily about moms and kids and that sort of thing. It's a lesson about where does your life come from? Where did your goodness come from? Do you see it come from God himself? But, of course, with this whole mandrake thing, we, we do get a taste of where Leah's at here. Leah's not uh, necessarily improved. She's not kind of gotten a lot better. She says, after the mandrakes are offered to her, verse 15, is it a small matter you've taken away my husband? The, the real issue here is that actually Rachel is the first lady. She's controlling access to the marriage bed. Leah's not had kids because she's not been able to go see Jacob. So what does she do? It's a sick thing Leah does. It's a sick thing Rachel agrees to. She buys him. 
She hires him for a night. This is what she says literally. Verse 16, I've hired you. What is Jacob? He's a stud animal. He's a stud animal. It's fascinating here because he's, he, he's really reduced to a beast here. This verb um, in <clears throat> verse 16, he lay with her that night. That, that, that's not a lovely verb. That, that verb there for what they do is not a nice verb. It's a horrible verb. It's a disgusting verb. It's never used for loving marital intercourse. It's always used for unlawful or forced sex. It's used with, with, with Lot's daughters when they uh, go into their father, when Dinah's raped, when Potiphar's wife tells Joseph to come and sleep with her. It's the verb used with this husband, Jacob, and his wife, Leah. Why? Because he didn't love her. He didn't love her. They're conceived in the heat of the night, animal passion. Because Jacob, we thought last week, his heart level problem is a sinful pattern of lust. He is an animal. He mates with her. Because, but here's the issue. She had bought him as a stud animal for the night. Is she much better? It's degrading for her, absolutely, but it's degrading for him too. In the middle, what's Rachel doing? She's happy to, to sell out her husband for some drugs, the mandrakes. You see, nobody's in the right here. This is not some happy story about, you know, the Bible presenting good people and smiley families. This is actually your family and mine. Vindictive, bitter, jealous, a whole sorry mess, not fit for public consumption. No place like home, yeah? It's a travesty. It's a travesty, and yet, and yet... Strikingly, God works in it all. This is a huge chapter. This, in fact, is a chapter that tells you so much about the history of the rest of the Bible. For the next thousand years, this chapter matters because it's where the Jews come from. The tribes of Israel come from here. Eleven out of the twelve come from here. But the very names of the tribes of Israel are yucky names. They're given out of spite and jealousy and backbiting. They're given cruel and nasty meanings. They're stained by sin. The very roots of the exile later on are from this moment. But the amazing thing is that though God looks at this raw material, these sinful people who are confused and inconsistent and hurt and resentful, this is actually how God provides the Savior of the world. Without this mass, no Jesus. Isn't that incredible that your Savior does not shy away from the gore? He does not shy away from the ickiness. He does not shy away from the disgusting black things that you don't talk about to people. You know, some folks are really into their ancestors, really into to their ancestors. But if you go far enough into your history, you'll find the skeletons. I almost guarantee it. You'll find some black sheep. But Jesus talks about the blackest of the black sheep. He comes. He comes to the darkest of the dark. He says, publicize it in my word right here in this chapter. See the kind of life, the kind of people, the kind of world my son will come to and my son will save. My son will love. Do you understand, friends? There's no dark corner in your life. There's no 3, 3 a.m. struggle that you have that his grace and power is not sufficient to redeem. His grace is not sufficient to reach. It's classic Yahweh, classic God. It's vintage Jesus. You see the church in the New Testament. Look at the church in the New Testament. Is it a wonderful, happy community of people always being nice? No. Immorality and sin, quarrels, bitterness. 
Look at Christ's own life. What does he come into? He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. John 1. He came to his own. His people had a preference for a different kind of Messiah, but God overruled human preference. His enemies hated him. They nailed him to a cross. But what Peter said in Acts 4.28, they did what your power, they did what your will had decided beforehand. The plans of God stand forever. This is the picture of your life, friends. Human nature has not changed. Look at Jacob. Look at Rachel. Look at Leah. Be humbled. Realize you are bullheaded like me. Selfish. That's the raw material. But this is given to encourage us. It's given to encourage us, friends. Because you look at what happens in verse 22. It's given to encourage us. We read this, the very end. Three verbs, then God. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to Rachel. And God opened her womb. The commentators tell us it's about three years afterwards, after all the mandrake stuff. So it ain't the mandrakes. They didn't do it. But apparently, Rachel had realized finally she had sunk so low to buy the drugs. The drugs didn't work. She had realized that Jacob wasn't wasn't her savior. He couldn't do it. We're not told ever that she prays to God. We are told, however, that he listens to her. Therefore, she must have cried out to the Lord. And what happens? Verse 23. Finally, she conceived and bore a son. And said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph. Do you see what what happens here, friends? Rachel exchanges her shame for sons. That's the gospel. may not sound like the gospel, but it is the gospel. Her shame is exchanged for sons. Barrenness was shame, reproach, lifelessness. But God gives life to her. That's the cross, friends. God takes your shame, takes your reproach, your evil and your sinfulness, your lifeless dead soul, and he gives a new heart, a new mind, and a new life to you. He declares you a life-filled woman, an honorable man. Through Christ Jesus, he overrules your soul's inability to love him above all else. Life out of death. That's this, that's this text right here. Life out of death. And notice, by the way, that she calls his name Joseph not just because God takes away something, but it has a second meaning. May the Lord add to me another son. Do you understand that when God doesn't just, he doesn't just take away your shame and say, good luck, buddy. He gives you something. He gives you something. He gives you his son. The other son ultimately is Christ. He gives you his son. And he says, because I give you my son, look to me. When you're tempted to be envious like Rachel, wrathful like Jacob, scheming and manipulating like all of them, really. The scriptures show that what you desperately need is your maker. The one who makes life, the one who gives life, the one who comes and brings grace upon grace. In the middle of your misusing his grace, he gives more grace. Do you not see how how you ought to love him, friends? I saw close with this great quote by uh, John Chrysostom a great Byzantine preacher. He says this, whatever kind of wife you marry, you will never take a bride like Christ did. 
perfect a bride like Christ did when he married the church. You will never marry anyone estranged from you as the church was from Christ. Despite all this, he did not abhor her. He did not hate her for her extraordinary corruption. That's the Christ we have, friends. He does not hate you for your extraordinary corruption. He married you. He married us. We saw it today, even in the joined together of fellowship. But we see it ultimately every day as God gives grace upon grace. May we love him and worship him as our Savior and our husband. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you as the one who loves us. Lord, we know we're unlovely. We know we're not worthy. We know our plans are often filled with bitterness. We are envious of others. And yet, Lord, you give life. I pray that as you give life to us today in Christ, that we would see that great exchange, that you have given us your perfect son, that we might live in love towards you and our families and those we meet day by day. Help us to give up our envy, our strife, our bitterness. And to love you for the grace upon grace you give. We ask this in the name of Christ himself. Amen.